And now, Lord, we just come to your word and thank you for what you will teach us through it as we open our hearts. We pray this all in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you'll take your Bibles with me now, let us turn to the book of Revelation. As we go to, book, to the book of Revelation chapter 2, we are studying the seven churches found in Revelation 2 and 3. And last week, we looked at the first church. And of course, these were messages uh, that the Lord Jesus himself had sent to the, these seven literal churches which, which existed during this time, the life of, of uh, John in the first century. And so these are churches that uh, Jesus had a special message to each one of them. But as we talked about, though he speaks to the churches as a whole in these, these, uh, these towns, uh, that that uh, are presented to us, we must take, uh, I believe, what is said, and we must apply it personally to our lives. To, to that, I could take what Jesus is saying, and and I may think, well, okay. So I think of the church corporately, and I think, okay, the Lord Jesus would would like this to happen, and this is a problem in our church, but this is. Also, something he praises in our that's being done in our church, uh, but I think it's important for us to take this to heart individually, and take this as a uh, an exhortation to each and every one of us as a child of God, because we all make up the body of Christ. We are all the church here tonight, and so uh, so that's what we want to do as we go through this series. We looked at the first church, Ephesus, last week. But now we come to the second church, the message to the town or the church of Smyrna. And that we're going to look at verses 8 through 11. 8 through 11. Now, a little background about Smyrna. The word Smyrna literally means myrrh. You remember from the Christmas story, gold, frankincense, and myrrh? from the, the, the kings. Well, that's what the word means, myrrh. It's located in modern Turkey today. And uh, something that was uh, after archaeological digs were done uh, in this city of Smyrna, uh, it was a Roman city, but and of course it was heavily pagan. Pagan temples... And there was one particular temple, the most important one in Smyrna, and it was a temple to the worship of the emperor of Rome. In fact, uh, they basically, it was emperor worship, and that was the main religion in this city. So you had to praise and worship Caesar, the Caesar of Rome. And... Actually, they, they tried to ban all the other religions in the city so that if you got in trouble, if you tried to worship in any other way or any other deity other than 
the, the, the emperor of Rome. And so what that caused uh, was great persecution to the believers here who had begun a small church there in Smyrna. And they were beginning to be persecuted and greatly attacked because of their faith. So we're going we're gonna to be seeing that. And a portion, uh, those that were Jewish in there, uh, many of them, again, they, uh, they would uh, pretend to, uh, some of those Jews would profess to be Christians. They would infiltrate the church. But then they came with some uh, false teaching and, and blasphemy, and they began to um, divide the church, bring accusations against the true believers, those Gentiles who uh, have accepted Christ or Jews that accepted Christ, and then they would come in, and it, it caused major problems from within. So that's a little background to Smyrna. And so now we see, remember, Jesus Christ is sharing this, these words uh, in a letter to the churches, and particularly now to the church of Smyrna. So look at verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the first and the last, who was dead, and has come to life. Say this. Says, says this. Says this. Here Jesus uh, once again is using uh, uh, part of his uh, identity that he, uh, that he uses in chapter 1 to explain himself. And that he's the great I am. That he is the Alpha and Omega. And so here we see that Jesus defines himself to the church. And this is to be a word of encouragement to the suffering church in Smyrna. And he begins this small letter by saying to them, remember this. I, the one who am sending this message to you, I am the first and the last. And then I love what was next he said i was dead and has come to life here is exactly what brother jim was sharing uh when talking about the resurrection and jesus christ is sharing this with this church who many of the saints were being persecuted being put into the arena and they were being martyred for their faith and so you hear these christians uh, many of them, I'm sure, their faith was shaken. They wondered, are they in the middle of the tribulation period now? And the, the uh, persecution was so great. But Jesus, first of all, wants them to remember that he's the first and the last. That first means he, was, he established everything. He's the foundation of everything, which includes that church. He's the foundation of their salvation, the first and then he said, I am the first and the last. And using that word last, we think of Jesus Christ as the eternal judge. That one day he will judge the world and all the wickedness that, uh, and all the w- wicked people who have persecuted his church. 
and, and blaspheme God. And one day they will give an account. They will stand before God before they are cast into the lake of fire. And so Jesus is the final judge. And he wanted the church to know that, that they are being held in his hands. And they have that eternal security knowing that, that they belong to Jesus. If he is the first and the last, they know that they belong to him. And that they can trust Jesus Christ with the judging of their enemies one day and he says then he says the one who was dead and has come to life the woman who was dead and come to life turn to first Corinthians with me if you would chapter 15 first Corinthians 15 and of course uh, as Jim mentioned in uh, John chapter 11, when Jesus spoke, uh, when he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. So there is, there is life, eternal life, through Jesus Christ because of his power over death. And the Apostle Paul tries to make this clear. And uh, look at verse uh, 12. Let's pick it up at verse 12 together. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Can you imagine there were people uh, in the church that were believing what the, fairs, uh, what the uh, Sadducees believed, that there would be no res- resurrection from the dead? And so if, if you start believing that, and you start to believe well, maybe you thought, yeah, maybe Jesus rose from the dead, but it doesn't affect me, and I'm not going to rise from the dead. And th- this kind of doctrine was circling in the church here at Corinth, and Paul has to address it. So it says, how, how do, do some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, verse 13, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised... Then our preaching is in vain, and your faith also is in vain. I think sometimes um, when we get, uh, get burdened down in our life with the with trials of this life and the pressures and persecution, whatever it is, what comes to test us, if, if we don't remember the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, we can get discouraged very easily. Because I think sometimes we, 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 we forget that there's, there's something beyond this life waiting for us. There's eternal life. There is a, a beautiful place called heaven that Jesus is preparing for his saints. And then he's going to come back to earth and he's going to make a new heaven, new earth. Of course, he's going to first renovate this earth that we're on now for a thousand years. And he's going to reign on it, and we're going to reign with him. But that's all possible only because Jesus rose from the dead. And if I keep remembering that, my Savior lives, my Savior lives, then I don't need to be afraid of what's out there. I don't need to be afraid when I get the news that the doctor comes to me with some solemn news. And... and 
Many would collapse under that, that news. And yes, we get concerned, we worry about loved ones, and if, if something, if suddenly we were told we have terminal cancer, it, it, it would be easy to get just discouraged and, and depressed. But remembering that my Savior lives, and because He lives, I what? I too shall live. I can face tomorrow. Yeah, the song, because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. Yeah, what a Savior. And if we we just hold on to that wonderful truth, and Paul is trying to drive this home here, and this is what Jesus is trying to to encourage the saints at Smyrna who were being persecuted, encouraging them that though they may die for their faith, they are going to live again, that they have eternal life. And so he goes on, Paul, verse 15, Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. And by the way, think of, anybody know any of the other religions where their leaders that they worship rose from the dead? Nope, I don't. You can go, you can go all the way from Buddha to, to uh, Muhammad and Islam where are their leaders? They're still in the grave. But we have a Savior that conquered death. And so that's why Christianity is, is, is so great. And it spread over, the, over these many centuries because Jesus rose from the dead. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ, those loved ones who've died before us, have perished. In other words, we're never going to see them again. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, then we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been risen from the dead. He was raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Amen? We're going to be made alive. We don't need to be afraid of death. But each one in his own order. Christ was the first fruits. He was the first one to be raised from the dead. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. And then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to God and the Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. So we see here that Apostle Paul is emphasizing the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the truth about his rising from the dead. So if you'll go back with me to Revelation, I want you to keep that in mind as Jesus Christ speaks to this church, this suffering church of Smyrna. So if we go back, let's look at verse 9. Jesus then says to them, I know your tribulation and poverty. And in parentheses, but you are what? Rich. 
and the blaspheme by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now here we have the Lord Jesus speaking to them directly. And I love the first two words of verse 9. Take that with you. If, if, if there's nothing else you really take that, uh, with you, take these two words this week. And just, just go over them with, uh, in your mind with these words of Christ. I know. I know. Your tribulation. Jesus is saying to the church, you're not being, you, you may be going through the worst uh, suffering of your life, but I want you to understand I know what's happening to you. I'm watching you. I'm watching over you through it all. I know your tribulations and your persecutions and your trials. Jesus knows exactly what you are going through tonight. What you have to go home to, whatever that is, whether family issues, health issues, uh, other concerns, whatever they are, remember this. Jesus is saying, I know, I know what you're going through. And we, if we remember what Jesus suffered for us, then that is going to comfort my heart, knowing that my Savior went to the cross to suffer for me. Can I not be willing to suffer in this life a little bit for him? Even if it meant my death. And so he, <clears throat> Jesus excuse me, Jesus is encouraging the church saying, I know about your suffering. Remember that song, Does Jesus Care? Does Jesus care? Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. The long night's dreary. I know my Savior cares. I know my Savior cares. I know. He's saying to the church, I know your tribulation and poverty, but I want you to understand this. They were a poor church. They had nothing, and they were going through great tribulation. But what does he say to them here? He says, but I want you to remember this. Though you're poor physically on this earth, you are really rich spiritually. That you and I are the richest people in the world. Did you ever think about that? That you and I are are the wealthiest people in the world? Not because of what we own uh, materially, but what Christ has given me, what I have in Christ, that I am rich in Him. I have all the riches of Christ that he were given to me through, uh, through my uh, faith in Christ at the moment of my salvation, he has then promised me an inheritance in heaven. And so he's trying to remind them, Jesus is reminding them and reminding us tonight, remember how rich you are in me, Jesus is saying. In spite of your poverty, you are rich. And remember, Romans 8 
35, Paul wrote to the church, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And he wanted this church to understand that he was with them. He knew what they were going through, but he was with them in it. And in their poverty, he made them rich. Through his poverty, we were made rich when he became a man and died on that cross for us. Here Jesus is saying, I know what you're going through. And then he says, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. A synagogue of Satan. Here we have the Lord Jesus specifically mentioning some of the problems that the church was facing from the Jews that the Jews were blaspheming Christ because they were saying they were Christians, but yet they were saying false things about Christ. And yet they were coming into the church and they were claiming to be uh, uh, Christians. And also you had Jews that, those Jews who became Christians were suddenly uh, being attacked for their faith in Christ. If you know today what happens to uh, Jews that become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved, they pretty much lose everything. I remember when I was in college at Philadelphia College of Bible, I met a man, young man there who was there. He, uh, he came to the school and he, he shared his story with me. He said, uh, um, I'm, I'm from New York. I asked, where are you from? New, New York City. And then he, I, I said, so how did you come to know the Lord? He said, oh, I, someone shared the gospel with me in New York City. And, and it, it hit me like a ton of bricks and opened my eyes to understand who Jesus really was. And then he told me, he says, I'm a Jew. And so when I accepted Christ, I had to go home and I t- had to tell my parents that I now have trusted Christ. He said, my dad looked at me and said, I have no son." And he told me to leave, to get out of the house. His whole family turned on him because he was now a Christian. The Jewish, his Jewish family and relatives, they, were, they shunned him. Out the door he went. <clears throat> now he could have renounced his faith in Christ then and says, I don't want to lose my family. I want to lose the ones I love for Christ. But he said, I left. And I left with nothing except a few dollars, a little bank account that I had in my own name. And he says, my family was extremely wealthy. 
They had all the money. But once I became a believer in Christ, I no longer existed. And so I am not part of their will. I, I will not get nothing. And so I, can, I decided the Lord wants me into some kind of ministry. I need to learn more about Christ. And that's why I came to Philadelphia College of Bible. And so he was, he was working a side job to be able to pay for his loans to come to the school. He, this is what was going on in the church of Smyrna. That the Jews, any Jew that became a Christian, suddenly became part of the church. They were being attacked. There was intense persecution here. And uh, I'm sure many of you heard of the name Polycarp. Um, one of the church father, fathers in the first century. But he was a bishop of the church here in Smyrna, Polycarp. But let me read to you this so that you can get an understanding of some of the, the suffering. Polycarp, he was one of the early church fathers, but he was uh, said to be a disciple and a friend of the Apostle John. He was 86 years old when he was dragged from his home and brought in front of the Roman consul. The proconsul tried him and then tried to force him to deny Christ. And he said this to Polycarp. He said, swear, reproach your Christ, and I will set you free. Polycarp replied, And has he done me any wrong? No, he has not. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? The proconsul didn't give up. He said to Polycarp, I have wild animals here waiting for you. I will throw you to them if you do not repent and renounce your faith in this Christ. Polycarp replied, It is unthinkable for me to repeat from what is good to turn to what is evil. I will be glad, though, to be changed from evil to righteousness. And then, if you despise the animals, then the proconsul said, I will have you burned. Polycarp, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and then is extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and the eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. So why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. Polycarp took his stand faithfully for Christ. So the crowds gathered. They took him to the arena. They gathered wood. They built the wooden fire around him. They took the robe off Polycarp and they walked him over to the top of the stand where the wood was, was all uh, laid down around it. And the soldiers, there was a, a, a wooden pole there. And the, the soldiers were going to tie him to that pole, but they were also going to uh, nail him to that pole. Because uh, once the fire would start, 
they, they saw others just try and scream and run and take off the ropes. If the ropes burned, they would try and get away. But they were going to nail him. And Polycarp said this to them. He who grants me to endure the fire will in, in, enable me also to remain on this platform unmoved without the security you desire from nails. Before the fire started, Polycarp prayed this. I pray, I pray and I bless you for considering me worthy this day and this hour of sharing with the martyrs in the cup of my Lord Jesus Christ so as to share in the resurrection to the everlasting life of the soul body in the Holy Spirit. May I be received among them into your presence, Lord, today as a rich and acceptable sacrifice. For this and for everything, I praise and glorify you through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, your beloved child. Through him and with him, may you be glorified with the Holy Spirit, both now and forevermore. Amen. And with that, they set fire to Polycarp. They set fire to the wood. But was was incredible, eyewitnesses said that as they watched the fire burn, it did not touch Polycarp. It was not burning him. He stood there, they could see the flames, but nothing was happening to him. There was no screaming of him. They couldn't see any burning on him. And they were in shock at this. So at that, one of the soldiers came up and he took a sword and he shoved it through the fire into Polycarp's heart and killed him. And there he died. And here was a man who was put on trial for his faith. Uh, he was a pastor in Smyrna, this very church. And he went to the arena and was willing to lay down his life. And it reminds me of Stephen. We don't have time to turn to it, but uh, on your own time, go back to the uh, story of Stephen in Acts. And remember how he preached the gospel and then laid down his life as he became that first martyr of the church (coughs) as they stoned him. And what did he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So Jesus Christ is saying here to to the church, remember you're rich and those that blaspheme you, I know they are of the synagogue of Satan. What a statement to call. They don't have a Jewish synagogue of faith, but they they were so evil that Jesus called them a synagogue of Satan. But then verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Do you notice this? Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Notice he doesn't say, do not fear for I am going to deliver you. He doesn't say that. Sometimes we know that the Lord will deliver his saints from, from persecution and suffering. We have, we have the wonderful story of like Polycarp initially with the fire, he, it didn't burn him. God was sending a message, even though he did die. But we have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that story. God delivered them out of the fire for his glory. And yet there were others like Stephen and James who he allowed to die for their faith. 
So he is encouraging this church. He's saying, I'm not promising I'm going to get you out of the suffering and the persecution. Do not, but he says, I don't want you to be afraid. The greatest enemy, I believe, for a believer is fear. I believe if we are afraid of the world and what they can do to us, then I am defeated. I, I will not take my stand. And I will not be the witness that I need to be for Christ. But Jesus is encouraging them, saying, The suffering you are going through, do not fear. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. That you may be what? Tested or tried. And you will have tribulation ten days. But be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. I will give you the crown of life. Jesus is preparing them through this letter to them. He's saying, get ready. The devil is, is I'm a, God has allowed the devil to persecute his saints. And he is going to cast some of you into prison, and you will be what? That you may be tested. There is always a purpose in our suffering. And God uses it as a test in our life to test us, to, to drive us closer to him and to, to get us to a place where am I willing to trust Christ no matter what happens to me, no matter what the outcome is. My faith is in the Lord. And so he says, it might even take you to death. But he says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. I will give you the crown of life. This is the same crown of life that is referred to in James chapter 1, verse 12. We won't have time to turn to it, but in James 1, 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So this is a martyr's crown, the crown of life. Now, as you know, that many, uh, uh, there are other crowns that are mentioned in the New Testament that believers are going to receive. And we know in Revelation that we are going to cast our crowns at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ one day. But this crown, the, of course, some of you know the Greek word is Stephanos for this crown. And what it referred to was the type of crown that the judge would give at the end of the Olympic Games. That once the Olympic race was over, the games were done, the winners would receive a laurel wreath. It was a wreath that was like a half a crown, and, but it was made of, 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 of greenery and some, uh, some flowers, and, and it was set upon the head. So it wasn't, that one wasn't originally made of gold. Or, or, or jewels like we think of a crown. But it was the victor's crown that you wore, saying you will run the race, race well. And every martyr for the faith, past, present, and future, is going to receive the crown of life, a crown that the Lord Jesus is going to give. How, how wonderful to know that God is going to reward us and reward his saints for their faithfulness. And then verse 11 he who has an ear, let him hear what the churches, what the Spirit says to the churches. And then here is the uh, statement 
about overcoming. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Remember what we mentioned last Sunday night when we looked at the first church, the church of Smyrna. I'm sorry, the church of Ephesus. Do you remember back in verse 7? Look at verse 7. When he concluded his letter to the church at Ephesus, he said, To them who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, when we hear that statement, he who overcomes, you think, well, you've got to arrive at a certain place. You've got to overcome something on your own. And if you reach that place of overcoming, then you'll get this reward. Whereas other believers, you're not going to get it. But if you uh, study the, uh, what Jesus is saying here, everything that he says concerning those who overcome and will partake of something, it, every believer will partake of it. For here, I will grant, grant to eat you to eat the overcomer of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Does that, does that mean that, okay, some of you Christians who really, really didn't overcome very well in your life, you can't eat of the tree up here in heaven. But, but those of you who did, come on and feast. But we really know that he's talking about all true believers in the church when he's talking to overcomers. These are the true believers that are, uh, are truly uh, saved. Why? How do we know that? End of verse, go back to verse 11. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. What is the second death? It is in the lake of fire. We read that in Revelation. The lake of fire is the second death where the soul is cast into, the unbelieving soul is cast into the lake of fire. And that is called the second death, which means it's an eternal death. So question, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So how many Christians, true believers, are going to be hurt by the second death? Or zero, nada. None, right? This has to mean that this Jesus is encouraging all the true saints in that church. And he's telling them another wonderful thing. That remember this. That though you may die physically, you're only going to die once. But you will not face the eternal death that Satan and his angels and the unsaved are going to face. And... I'd like to close with this. There's this uh, saying that uh, uh, I've used, and it's, it's great when you, uh, uh, you're having a chance to witness with someone and share the gospel. If you're born once, you die twice. If you're born twice you die once think about that if you're born once right we're physically born all of us have a physical birth we're unless something changes we're going to die twice we have a physical death and the second death in hell but if we had two births 
where I have my physical birth, but then I have the second birth where I have trusted Christ and I'm born again. And I'm, I'm his child forevermore. Guess what? I only die once. Physical death may come or the rapture may take place and I'm caught up. I won't even face the first death. But I never have to fear that second death. And that's what Jesus is trying to share with the persecuted saints. And we leave that with you tonight in your heart. Be encouraged, my friend. And this is the only church we will find of the seven churches where Jesus has no condemnation to speak of concerning the church. Notice he doesn't say anything saying, I have this against you, like he will in the other churches. It's because of the persecution. Jesus is refining his people. May he refine us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much, Lord. That, Lord, through the ages, we have seen testimony, Lord, of those who have not been afraid to die for Christ. I pray, Lord, that we might have that same resolve as Polycarp and others. The Lord should have come to that point that we might not deny Christ. But, oh, Father, that we might fear not whatever may come our way. And that we might stand firm knowing that one day we shall be in your presence and we will receive a reward given by you. Thank you, Father, for encouraging our hearts tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.